Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we catch you up on some delicious science. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature news, news and more news including giant squids, recyclable batteries, the Large Hadron Collider, and more. Joining me in the studio to discuss this are Ian Wolfe and Therese Chen. Our first news item is one that's quite close to my heart. I don't know if other readers will be interested in this. But the new scientist reports on just how much meat an eco-citizen can eat. Meat is bad. Bad for you and bad for the environment. At least that's the usual argument. Each year, the doors to the UN climate negotiations, which kick off against in Durban, South Africa on the 28th of November, are assailed by demonstrators brandishing pro-vegetarian placards. The fact is, livestock farming accounts for a whopping 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions. We can't all go vegetarian, so how much meat is it okay for eco-citizens to eat? It's not just the demonstrators who are concerned about food impact on the climate. This week, a major report concludes that food production is too close to the limits of a safe operating space, defined by how much we need, how much we can produce, and its impact on the climate. 80% of agricultural emissions come from meat production, and the problem is just getting worse. As people are getting richer, the demand for protein gets stronger. It's unrealistic to expect that everyone will give up meat entirely, and many of the world's poor need to increase their meat consumption to overcome malnutrition and food insecurity. The solution is to eat less meat rather than no meat. In 2007, Colin Butler of the Australian National University in Canberra estimated that the average person consumed 100 grams of meat a day, or about one burger. The rich eat 10 times more than the poor. In other words, some people eat 10 burgers a day, while others get none. Butler showed that if each person in the world ate 50 grams of red meat and 40 grams of white meat per day, by 2050, Greenhouse gas emissions from meat production would stabilize at 2005 levels, a target cited in National Plans for Agricultural Emissions. So that's about one burger and one small chicken breast per person every two days. Butler's 2007 figures didn't take into account the fact that we throw out a lot of the animal mass produced because we consider it inedible. Western countries are the biggest offenders. And while many cultures are not phased by a meat of brains or testicles, Butler estimates that Americans and Australians throw up to half the cow mass they produce. So at New Scientist's request, he updated his calculations. He estimated that globally, we discard between 5 and 10% of the animal. This means we can allow ourselves 80 to 85 grams of red and white meat, or one burger and one chicken fillet every three days. That's the upper limit. Of course, maybe if we put the 5 or 10% that we normally wouldn't eat into the hamburgers, where we wouldn't notice them so much. Yeah, it's interesting. They actually went the other way. They pushed it even further because they went on to estimate that as countries get richer, people will want to eat less and less of the animal. And also there's the fact that meat is bulk produced and bulk packaged, so people end up buying more than they can eat and throw a lot of it out, or there's freezer burn. There's actually a lot more waste than what was accounted for in the study. And I thought it it was an interesting article in that it took a slant on the agricultural and emissions aspect, but it didn't really discuss the health aspect. How much meat can a person afford not to eat? So myself, I'm, I'm a conscientious omnivore, so I try to eat a little bit of meat, enough that I don't get anemic or sick, 
But that that's a value that changes for different people. Mm. Men don't need nearly as much red meat as women do, but ironically, they probably eat a lot more of it. When it talks about um, the waste gas reduction, is that related to like fertilizer use as well, or just the? Yeah, um, so animals? it's it's the land and it's the methane produced by the actual animal, and it, you're not even factoring in the fact that you're using heaps of antibiotics. I mean, most of the antibiotics used in our society today are in cattle animals. So there's, there's a whole lot of problems ethically, morally, environmentally with meat production. Next up, BBC Science News gives us an update on my old friend, the Large Hadron Collider. Particles called D-mesons seem to s- decay slightly differently from their antiparticles. The LHC physicist Matthew Charles told the Hadron Collider Project 2011 meeting on Monday. The result may help explain why we see so much more matter than antimatter. The team stresses that further analysis will be needed to shore up the results. At the moment, they are still claiming a statistical certainty of 3.5 sigma, suggesting that there is less than a 0.05% chance that the result they see is down to chance. The team has nearly doubled the amount of data that they have analyzed so far, so time will tell whether the result reaches the 5 sigma level that qualifies it for a formal discovery. The LHC detector was designed to examine particles containing so-called beauty quarks, watching them decay through time after high-energy collisions with other fundamental particles. The LHC collaboration was looking at decays of particles called demesons, which contain what are known as charmed quarks, which can in turn decay into kaons and pions. Our best understanding of physics so far, called the standard model, suggests that the complicated cascade of decay of d-mesons into other particles should be very nearly the same, with less than 0.1% difference, as a similar chain of antimatter decays. But the LHC team is reporting a difference of about 0.8%, which is a significant difference that, if true, could herald the first of new physics to be found at the LHC. Our results, they explain, is more significant because our precision has improved, somewhat more precise than all previous results put together. I think they're actually saying that the decay of antimatter is faster. By the time you're looking at an old, older universe like ours, a lot of the antimatter is already gone, but the matter remains. It just isn't stable. That's right. It's, it's fascinating. It's a completely theoretical conjecture that's been almost nearly proven significantly by the Large Hadron Collider, which is science at its best, I think. 200 million year old art may have been discovered. A 200 million year old midden was found with a skeleton shape of a 30 metre giant squid known as a kraken. The problem is that squid don't have bones, so they don't leave skeletal remains. The bones found in Nevada are from ichthyosaurs, school bus sized fish shaped dinosaurs but taken apart and rearranged in the shape of squid tentacle suckers. Mount Holyoke College paleontologist Mark McManon presented the results of his work at the 2011 annual meeting of the Geological Society of America in Minneapolis. The nine ichthyothor skeletons he found were of the species Shonisaurus popularis, which were 14 metres across each. The different degrees of etching on the bones suggested that the Shonisaurs were not all killed and buried at the same time. In the fossil bed, some of the Shonisaur vertebral discs are arranged in a curious linear pattern with almost geometric regularity. Modern octopus have been known to do this with the remains of their prey. The vertebral discs are arranged in double-line patterns with individual pieces nesting in a fitted fashion as if they were part of a puzzle. 
The arranged vertebra resemble the pattern of sucker discs on a cephalopod tentacle, with each vertebra strongly resembling a colloid sucker. In other words, the vertebral disc pavement that you can see at the State Park may represent the earliest known self-portrait. Among the evidence of kraken attacks are many more ribs broken in the Shonisaur fossils than would seem accidental, and the twisted necks of the ichthyosaurs. Could a cephalopod really have taken out such huge swimming predatory reptiles? No one would have believed such a tale until the staff of the Seattle Aquarium set up a video camera at night a few years ago and found out what was killing the sharks in one of the large tanks. What they were shocked to discover was that a large octopus they kept in the same tank was the culprit. The video of Octopus vs. Shark is available online. So let me get this straight. The squid was making a self-portrait using the bones of its prey. That's what it looks like. They're not certain, but that's the best guess. That's like the biggest villain in all of history. That's incredible. And like H.P. Lovecraft, horror writer of the 20s, would have absolutely loved the idea of 200 million year old artificial design from cephalopods, giant monster cephalopods, rearranging the bones of their prey to make pretty shapes. Don't they... Isn't the conjecture that cephalopods are as smart, if not smarter, than humans? I hadn't heard that they were as smart or smarter, but I do know that they... There are lots of stories of their intelligence, that they are very smart, that at times that they've certainly done things to outsmart humans... But whether they're smarter overall, it's really hard to say. Um, they need more research. There's, I can't think of the author, but there's a book called The Octopus and the Orangutan, which is Tales of Animal Intelligence, which has some amazing stories of octopuses that have done things like the lights were left on in the aquarium overnight, and they didn't like it. So they managed to switch them off by squirting water at the lights, and the staff couldn't figure it out for a long time why the lights kept burning out until somebody stayed behind to watch. That's incredible. And the octopuses have been shown to be able to recognise individual humans and behave differently. And it makes you wonder if they're able to recognise themselves, if they had any way of, of uh, glimpsing their reflection, which I realise is very difficult when you're in the water. But <laughs> <laughs> There may be some way like near the surface, perhaps, where it reflects back. Has science formally defined what consciousness is? Is it, is it a recognition of the self? Is it a creation of art? It's a really good question. Basically, consciousness is one of those hard questions that nobody agrees on yet. There's no so, hard and fast rule. No. So it's we know it when we see it, and we like the idea that it's self-awareness. So we like saying that there's degrees of consciousness. So you can say all sorts of animals are conscious because they've got some awareness of their self. And maybe we don't like the idea so much that Insects might not have an awareness of themselves, but they still have a nervous system. But art, art is something we kind of look at in higher intelligence. I'm wondering if it's one of those field posts that's constantly changing as, as we become more uncomfortable you know, with animals, proving that they're intelligent. So the fact that, you know, animals can use tools. Or... I totally agree. I think that's exactly what happens. So they do move the goalposts and... First, it's using tools, and then animals use tools. Then it's using language, and we find animals use language. And now it's no longer must they just use language, but they must have grammar, and they must use it in the right order. And so we just keep moving the goalposts until we kind of say, if it's us, it's intelligent, and if it's not, it's not. Beware, Kafulhu. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send your emails to diffusion at 2ser.com.
Diffusion is brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3 FM, and over the internet on our podcast, www.diffusionradio.com. Well, speaking of humans and their great intelligence, from the Science Daily we have an article claiming that the human gene count tumbles again. Estimates of the number of genes in the human genome have ranged wildly over the past two decades, from 20,000 all the way up to 150,000. By the time the working draft of the human genome was published in 2001, the best approximation stood at 35,000. Yet even that number has fallen. A new analysis, one that harnesses the power of comparing genome sequences of various organisms, now reveals that the true number of human genes is about 20,500, which is thousands fewer than what is currently listed in human gene catalogs. The work, led by researchers at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard has implications beyond merely settling the debate over how many genes are in the human genome. An accurate gene count can help identify the location of genes and their functions, an important step in, the trans in translating genomic information into biomedical advances. Ironically, the way genes are recognized has triggered much of the confusion over the human gene count. Scientists on the hunt for typical genes that is, the ones that encode proteins, have traditionally set their sights on so-called open reading frames, which are long stretches of 300 or more nucleotides, or letters, of DNA, bookended by genetic start and stop signals. This method produced the most recent gene count of roughly 25,000, but the number came under scrutiny after the 2002 publication of the mouse genome revealed that many human genes lacked mouse counterparts and vice versa. Such a discrepancy seemed suspicious, in part because evolution tends to preserve gene sequences. Genes, by virtue of the protein they encode, usually serve crucial biological ro roles. But like it or not, the 25,000 DNA sequences were already listed in the catalogue of human protein-coating genes, and skeptics had no systematic way to remove them. Far from blatant mistakes, non-gene sequences can masquerade as true genes if they are long enough and happen by chance to fall between start and stop signals. Despite having gene-like characteristics, these open reading frames may not encode proteins. Instead, they might have other functions, or possibly none at all. To distinguish such misidentified genes from true ones, the research team, which was led by Clamp and Broad Institute director Eric Lander developed a method that takes advantage of another hallmark of protein-encoding genes, conservation by evolution. The researchers considered genes to be valid if and only if similar sequences could be found in other mammals, namely mouse and dog. Applying this technique to nearly 22,000 genes in the Ensemble gene catalog, their, anal their analysis revealed 1,177 orphan DNA sequences. These orphans looked like proteins because of their open reading frames, but were not found in either the mouse or the dog genomes. Although this was strong evidence that the sequence were not true protein-coding genes, it was not quite convincing enough to justify their removal from the human gene catalogs. Two other scenarios could, in fact, explain their absence from other mammalian genomes. For instance, the genes could be unique among primates after the divergence of mouse and dog ancestors from primate ancestors. Alternatively, the genes could have been more ancient creations, present in a common mammalian ancestor, that were lost in the mouse and dog lineages, yet retained in humans. If either of these possibilities were true, then the orphan genes should appear in other primate genomes, in addition to our own. To explore this, the researchers compared the orphan sequences to the DNA of two other primate cousins, chimpanzees and macaques, 
After careful genomic comparisons, the orphan genes were found to be true to their name. They were absent from both primate genomes. This evidence strengthened the case for stripping these orphans of their title, gene. After extending the analysis to two more gene catalogs and accounting for more misclassified genes, the team's work invalidated a total of nearly 5,000 DNA sequences that had been incorrectly added to the list of protein-coding genes, reducing the current estimate to roughly 20,500. So I guess there's no chance they're just purely human genes. There's a very small chance. But I think, I wonder at how many purely human genes there would be if 97 or, or even more than that percent of our genome is the same as chimpanzees. And even then, how much variation between human genomes and chimpanzee genomes aren't in the proteins themselves, but in how they're regulated? Well, this is what's confusing, because on the one hand, we might be you know, 98% the same as chimps, but if they're now saying that the 2% that's different doesn't count, it seems like having it both ways. I don't think that's what... No, they're saying the ones that aren't found in chimps don't count. They're only counting the, the orphan ones, though. Mm. They're, they're not doing it with the entire 25,000 catalogue of human genes. They're only doing it with the you know, 1,177,000 1, that they found not present in mouse and dog. Right. So the ones that they found not present in mouse and dog are also not present in chimps and macaques. It could be a purely hum- human gene, it's true. Interesting, interesting work. Do you think it, they were too quick to invalidate the genes? Perhaps. I mean, saying you know they may do something, they may not. I had thought there was other work that showed that supposedly junk DNA was actually more part of... They were functional in different ways or more part of like the operating system of a cell rather than instructions. Yeah, they have a lot to do with the, the way the chromosomes fold up when they're unfurled. I think there's a, there's a lot to do with junk DNA and epigenetics and mm. modification of how much proteins get expressed. So is that what they're going to be called now, junk DNA instead of genomes, uh, genes? or No, they're orphan chromosomes. Orphan chromosomes. <laughs> they're orphan sequences of the human DNA. Ah. Yes, because they're no longer chromosomes, mm. according to this definition. Well, they're they're within the chromosome. So they're that's right, I'm they're still my, within my the chromosome, right. but they're no longer formally genes. They just have a start and a stop. That's right, like a gene, but otherwise they're not. Earth batteries on Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a website where people with new ideas present them to the public to kick in money to make the project happen. It's sort of like crowdsourcing venture capitalism on a small scale. They say how much money they need to make the project work and then people can donate or pre-buy the product enough for them to be actually able to make it. So they can be businesses who promise you a product for your money or non-profits who promise an outcome. Earth batteries are a Kickstarter project of batteries that are designed to be cradle to cradle. That is, they're completely reusable and recyclable. The batteries are made from low self-discharge nickel metal hydride which is a technology from 2005, which means that the batteries don't lose their charge very much over a year. And normally, even alkaline batteries, the old standard that everybody just puts in and uses and throws away, they don't keep their charge um, over a whole long period of storage, and rechargeables even less. So even if you don't use them, they run out. Whereas these ones, even after a year, they've still got 85% of their charge, sometimes more. So they come with a mailer. So that instead of throwing them out, you throw them into the post box. 
the company will recharge the batteries with their special recharger and sell them again. Once the batteries are no longer holding a charge, they'll recycle the materials to make new batteries. The US throws away around 3 billion alkaline batteries every year, all of them made from toxic materials that leak into landfills and find their way into the environment. So you can buy a special low-discharge nickel metal hydride recharger, but the Earth Batteries company believes that most Americans would rather just open a fresh batch of batteries and throw the old ones in the post. You can find out more about them at kickstarter.com. That's really incredible, but I'm wondering as a consumer, what if I got that battery that's just barely holding a charge, the, the last batch to be sent out before it's recycled? Is there a, would there be a way of finding out which number it is? I would hope that they would only resend out the ones that are going to last a reasonable amount of time. I think it's a great idea. I think it is. I'm not sure it's enough. I think it's one of those things where the world of chemistry, I mean, this is the year of chemistry, I believe, and yet uh, battery technology seems to be really, really slow, and it's where we need a really big boost. The best batteries we have are lithium batteries, and they have two problems. One is that lithium's explosive, and most high-power things tend to be, and the other one is that we don't seem to be collecting the lithium once it's used except from old phones. So old phones are being collected, and that's great, but all the other lithium batteries out there are not being collected, and the lithium is completely recyclable. You can just make new batteries out of them again and again and again. So we need better battery technology. Would you suggest a similar system for lithium batteries? That sounds like it could work very well. Once you're finished with the lithium batteries, you just post them back to the company. That could be terrific. I think they've chosen this particular technology because lithium discharges rather quickly. It doesn't hold its charge over the year. And I guess they want some shelf life for the consumer. And so what's the basis for this battery? It, this is what they call a low self-discharge, so it doesn't run out very quickly, nickel metal hydride. It's nickel. They claim it'll last longer than your usual batteries, but I think they mean longer than alkaline because lithium batteries just last longer. So I agree. Um, it'd be nice to see them expand, perhaps, to lithium if they get their business going. But they're on Kickstarter, so there's a chance that not enough people will think it's worthwhile. Um, it depends. So is there any mention of the costs in comparison to like the other batter- like alkaline batteries? And They have some graphs on the page, and it looks like it's a little bit more expensive than a disposable battery, but cheaper than a rechargeable. Okay. And last but not least, we have an update on the Fukushima meltdown. From New Scientist, the fallout from the radiation leak at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor in Japan may be less severe than predicted. Radiology researcher Ikuo Kashikura of Hirosaki University, Japan, and colleagues responded immediately to the disaster, traveling south to Fukushima Prefecture to measure radiation levels in more than 50 in more than 5,000 people there between the 15th of March and the 20th of June. They found just 10 people with unusually high levels of radiation, but those levels were still below the threshold at which acute radiation syndrome sets in and destroys the gastrointestinal tract. Geiger counter readings categorized all others in the area as at no contamination level. How did the population of Fukushima Prefecture dodge the radioactivity? Jerry Thomas at Imperial College in London, director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank, says that the answer is simple. Not an awful lot of radioactive material got out of the plant. It was no Chernobyl. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster released ten times as much radiation as Fukushima Daiichi. 
Thomas says the quick response and thorough response by the Japanese government limited radioactive exposure among the population. On the 12th of March, the same day as the first explosion at Fukushima Daiichi, the government ordered the evacuation of residents within 20 kilometers and asked various institutions to begin monitoring contamination levels. They had no faxes, no emails, and nothing was working, said Thomas, adding that other countries might not have coped as well with a combined earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear plant malfunction. Given the circumstances, they did phenomenally. The Japanese authorities also removed contaminated food and gave iodine to those who were very young, she says. Radioactive iodine can contaminate the thyroid gland in the body, leading to radiation-induced cancer, but can be counteracted by introducing non-radioactive iodine into the body. Health researchers will have to keep an eye on radiation levels, however. There are many hotspot areas where radioactivity has accumulated locally, said Kashirakura. This is because rainfall deposited radioactivity unevenly. The Japanese people have a responsibility to continue research on the effect of radioactivity in humans. They've still got other nuclear power plants that are built to the same design, that are also on the ocean and also on fault lines. And they're open and running. That's true. I wonder if we've learned anything from the Fukushima Daiichi meltdown in how to contain contaminated toxic material and how to de-escalate radiation damage. Well, one of the things they've learned is that you shouldn't store your radioactive waste upstairs. If you store it upstairs, then you have to pump the water up to cool it down. And unfortunately, again, the other reactors they have are storing it upstairs because they're all built to the same design and they've got the space upstairs. And maybe they need a taller anti-tsunami barrier than they had, since nobody thought it would ever be that high, except for the people who warned them that it would be that high. We're dealing with a tough situation. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion Science Radio. You can send us emails to diffusion at 2SER.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings, or share us some science stories. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney, we'd love to have more volunteers into Diffusion, so don't hesitate to volunteer. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolf and Therese Chen. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolf in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>